Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Today we learn about Virginia Hall. She was a spy. And this is her story. Born in Baltimore to Barbara and Edwin Ned Hall, Virginia's family was well-to-do. Barbara was a secretary, and Ned was a prominent banker who also owned several cinemas in Baltimore. Virginia was the youngest child, but she only had one sibling, an older brother, John, who was four years her senior. When she was born, John couldn't pronounce his sister's name, so he called her Dendy and it was a nickname that followed Virginia the remainder of her life. The Halls had a modern apartment, but they also kept a country home in Parkton, Maryland, and they called it Boxhorn Farm. The farm had a fully stocked library and acres of land for the kids to explore. When at the farm, the family also raised horses, goats, chickens, and a couple of cows, The combination of lifestyles that she was exposed to was a great advantage for Virginia, who once stated that learning to milk the cows turned out to be very handy. You love a good pun, don't you? I do. It was very literal. I like that. I appreciated that. Young Virginia was an above average, although not exceptional student, but she was very involved in school activities. She was class president at her school, editor in chief of the school newspaper, and was heavily involved in theater, and she was always willing to play both the female and the male parts at her all-girls school. Just whatever was needed, she would be there. Virginia was also known as a talented athlete. She excelled in tennis, baseball, basketball, and field hockey. Once, Dindy, as the students knew her, showed up to class wearing a live garter snake as a bracelet. Her fellow classmates called her the Fighting Blade. In high school, she was voted the most original of her class, and part of her senior profile read, She lives up to her reputation at all times. The one thing to expect from Dindy is the unexpected. After graduating high school, she attended Radcliffe College. Radcliffe College eventually merged with Harvard, and that's kind of an interesting story in itself. Yeah. Um, You had what was called the Harvard Annex. It was a private program for the instruction of women by Harvard faculty. And it was founded in 1879 after long efforts by women to gain access to Harvard College. So this guy, Arthur Gilman, he was a founder of what became called the Annex Radcliffe. Now, this was a time when higher education for women was a very controversial topic, right? Gilman hoped to establish better educational opportunity for his daughter. So he's kind of self-motivated here. Right. At the time, even the best female colleges like Radcliffe and Vassar had non-university trained faculty. It's crazy. Well, he worked out a deal with Harvard. He convinced 44 members of the Harvard faculty to consider giving lectures to female students in exchange for extra money. So they... Formed a committee, Karen. You know why? (laughs) Why? Because there's always a committee, Karen. There's always a committee. Of course there is. But anyway, the 
The committee members hoped that by raising an enticing endowment for the annex, they'd be able to convince Harvard to admit women directly into the college, but still as students of Radcliffe. But the university resisted. So let me read what Charles Eliot said in his inaugural address as president of Harvard in 1869. Okay. The world knows nothing about the capabilities of the female sex. Only after generations of civil freedom and social equality will it be possible to obtain the data necessary for an adequate discussion of women's natural tendencies, tastes, and capabilities. It's not the business of the university to decide this mooted point. Wow. Yeah, now, personally, <laughs> after much study, I still know next to little about women. Almost nothing. I would agree with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would agree with you. Mm -hmm. But it seems this man underestimated women, which is something even I have learned not to do. <laughs> Hopefully. 120 years later... The committee's work <laughs> paid off, and Radcliffe College was fully absorbed into Harvard University. Now, had there been no committee, it would probably have only taken five years. <laughs> Virginia majored in economics with a minor in foreign languages. By the time she graduated from Radcliffe with her first degree, she was fluent in French, Italian, and German, and she had a pretty good grasp of Spanish and Russian. After finishing there at Radcliffe, she transferred to Barnard College in New York, but she just got increasingly annoyed with American formal education because of all the courses that she considered uninteresting. Virginia's father sympathized with her frustration, and he helped her study abroad. She studied politics in Paris, economics and international law in Vienna, and spent summers attending classes at the well-regarded French universities. She also took courses at the American University and George Washington University in D.C. Virginia's future seemed extraordinarily bright, and the world was hers for the taking. But in two short years, her entire life turned upside down. It all started with the Wall Street crash of 1929. Well, and remember, the Hall family was a banking family. In small towns, bankers, they were looked up to and trusted. People put their money in the bank. They were trusting the bankers with everything they had. It's not like today where a bank fails and the owners walk away with millions. It's more like what we saw in um, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Wasn't that kind of an example? Of Very much so, like, yes. The bank runs. Yeah. So if a bank failed, the banker was broke. Right. And Virginia was very, very close to her father. All her life, her father had been very well regarded and many people depended on him as their employer. He had worked very hard to maintain balance between his professional responsibilities and quality time with his family. And Virginia adored her father for that. But Dindy always knew and understood the importance of her father's leadership in the community. When the Wall Street crash happened, it devastated Ned Hall. Ned agonized over the plight of his many employees while watching his own fortune disappear. He scrambled to rebound with new business ventures and just to try to keep those working for him employed, but all the ventures failed miserably, and Ned bore the heavy burden of many scorched lives. The stress of this culminated in a sudden cardiac arrest at the young age of 51, 
leaving his family, especially his dindy, completely devastated. Before Ned's death, in an effort to cut costs, Ned had sold the Baltimore apartment and officially moved the family to the Boxhorn Farm. Life there was healing to Virginia, but hard. The lack of modern convenience that used to make the country home seem whimsical and charming now became burdensome, when it was a necessity rather than a choice. The farm was still the place that Virginia found the most peace, though. She tried to help her mother and her brother deal with the loss of Ned and their financial status, but she was overwhelmed with grief herself. Trying to find her way to a new normal, Virginia applied to the State Department and received a clerical position at the American Embassy in Warsaw. Although this was a low position on the totem pole, it gave her a start and she began learning about coding and decoding, processing visas, and reporting. She prepared to apply for an intelligence position, but part of her application mysteriously disappeared and she missed the posting deadline. Utterly disgusted, Virginia put in a transfer to Turkey. Virginia chose that location not just to get away, but because it was great for an outdoor enthusiast like her due to the nearby lagoons and salt marshes. When she wasn't at work, Virginia found solace in exploring the area, but it, that solace didn't last for long. Her time in Turkey ended up being just a huge turning point in her life. During a snipe hunting expedition, at first, I thought you were crazy saying that, but then I looked it up and found out that snipes actually were real birds, and hunting them was a real thing. <laughs> yeah. So, during a snipe hunting expedition, she got a bit too eager to be the first one to bag a bird and stumbled in the tall reeds, and this caused her shotgun to slip off her shoulder and get caught in her long coat. As she struggled to free the gun, she fired around, point blank, into her left foot. Dindy was rushed to the hospital, and for three weeks, she appeared to rally and recover. Then, all of a sudden, she took a turn for the worse. An infection began to rage within the open wound. Her foot turned black, and gangrene began working its way up her body. Medical treatment was limited at the time, so in order to keep her organs from shutting down, the difficult decision was made to amputate her leg just below the knee. So, on Christmas Day, 1933, Virginia lost most of her leg. She was 27 years old. For a few weeks after, Virginia was so depressed she was basically non-functional, and this left her body vulnerable to attack again, and she ended up with sepsis. While she battled high fevers and fell in and out of consciousness, she had a vivid dream where her father appeared to her and told her not to give up and that it was her duty to survive. So she did. And she not only survived, she thrived. A few months and a few surgeries later, Virginia was fitted for a prosthetic leg. And these were not the prosthetic legs you see today. Right. They weren't full-blown pirate peg legs, but they were pretty rudimentary. Now, they did have a flexible right. joint at the knee, but obviously that was dependent on you kind of leaning forward and backwards. They also had these leather straps that had to be attached to a corset or vest, and the leather often chafed and made you generally uncomfortable. The foot was generally made of metal, and the whole thing weighed about nine pounds. 
Now, for comparison, I tried to weigh my leg this morning, but I could not figure out how, Karen. <laughs> so I Googled it, and it turns out for someone her size, her other leg would weigh about 26 pounds. So that would create a little disturbance of balance there. Yeah, just, just a tad. Well, clearly, living with a prosthesis like that would be a difficult process. But Virginia took the difficulties in stride. Did you say that? She took it in stride. I, I did okay. say that. That was rude. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I didn't mean it the way. It, yeah, that was probably not a good choice of words. Not only did she deal with the obstacle in a practical manner, she also chose to find humor in her predicament, naming her prosthesis Cuthbert and referring to it as a separate individual. Oftentimes, acquaintances would assume Cuthbert was an actual person. After spending some rehabilitation time at her beloved Boxhorn Farm, she got back to work and found herself stationed in Venice, which normally people would be very excited about, but not for Virginia, because Venice was a walking city filled with cobblestone streets, stairs, and bridges. So what used to be beautiful in her eyes now just seemed like an obstacle course. So she came up with a solution. She had her own gondola made, and she hired a local man to help her row. And apparently her gondola was designed with, like, this big golden um, lion on the mm. front of it. <laughs> so she was she was kind of fun. As she adapted to her new surroundings and began to build a stellar reputation within the State Department, she also started observing the socioeconomic landscape shifts that occurred with the rise of fascism. Well, with the global threats swirling around her, Virginia wanted to do much more than what she considered to just be clerical work, so she applied to be a diplomat. Despite the fact that her experience and education surpassed most, her application was at first denied due to a rule barring amputees. Many lobbied for her. Um, they wanted to see her application be reconsidered, and some took the fight all the way to the White House. But ironically, FDR denied her supplication and her direct supervision, frustrated that she fought the system, punished her by relocating her to Estonia, doing even more low-grade work. While in Estonia, Virginia saw the same strain of nationalism take hold that she had observed in the rest of Europe. Political parties were banned, the press was being censored, and foreign names were being adapted to sound more Estonian. Her concerns were not unwarranted. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. Yes, and you have to remember being in Estonia, they were under the sphere of Russian influence, and they were part of the Russian-German non-aggression pact. Now, my guess is Estonians would have been very wary as there was only Lithuania and Latvia separating Germany and occupied Poland from Estonia. Now, right. Estonia declared itself neutral in the war, but they were occupied by Russia in 1940. Then when Germany attacked Russia, of course, Germany came after Estonia. So they were ended up under Nazi control, and the men who did not flee to Finland were conscripted into the German army. Before leaving, Russia employed their scorched-earth tactics. There was also a holocaust in Estonia, too. Most of the Jewish population knew what was going to happen if 
the Germans occupied Estonia and they fled to Russia. Mm. Okay. But about a thousand stayed behind and they were murdered by the Germans. Uh. So the war was really, even though they declared themselves neutral, it was brutal on Estonia. Between the Russian occupations and German occupations, Estonia lost about 25% of its population during the war. So that's the place she was in. That's the environment she was in. Right. And that's something you don't hear about very often. That's that's pretty, that's, that's, that's really horrific. It truly is. Virginia tried to volunteer for the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which is the women's branch of the British Army, but was denied due to foreigners not being welcome. So she was very frustrated and knowing that she must do something, she returned to France and she signed up with the French 9th Artillery Regiment to drive ambulances for the resistance because the resistance was taking anybody. So they're like, you don't have a leg? You've got a wooden leg? Cool. Drive an ambulance. Like they didn't even, they didn't even care. Yeah, they, they didn't just have height needed requirements all or anything else. Right. Right. So she trained in first aid and she spent her time driving ambulances under fire and fighting wherever she could. But think about that. There were not I'm sure these ambulances were not specially equipped to help her. Right. With with her special needs, with the she had a wooden leg and, you know, there were stick shifts. Right. And she's driving like under fire. Right. (laughs) It's crazy. And trying to give aid at the same time. Well, by 1940, Hitler's campaign of horror had heightened to the point that the British had lost most of their intelligence that they had in France. One British agent, George Bellows, tried to glean what he could in France, and he came across Virginia and was just astounded by her experience, education, and her just her raw grit and determination. So, he slipped her information to the directors of a new program dedicated to intelligence and gathering and sabotage. 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 And that was the Special Operations Executive, also known as the SOE. The Special Operations Executive, SOE, was a British World War II organization. It was officially formed on the 22nd of July, 1940, from the amalgamation of three existing secret organizations. Its purpose was to conduct espionage, sabotage, 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 and reconnaissance in occupied Europe. Few people were aware of SOE's existence. It was also known as Churchill's Secret Army. Amid some concerns about her gender and the fact that she was American, she was accepted into the SOE. And after a few weeks training, she made it to her very first destination as an official spy. And guess where that was, Chuck? Lisbon. Lisbon, because all spies go through Lisbon. But eventually she settled into her new role in Vichy, France, under the cover as a war correspondent for the New York Post. Her first mission was to employ E and E tactics. That was that meant escape and evasion for underground SOE members and members of the French resistance. In her new role, Virginia developed some very important assets. Two of these included well-regarded French gynecologist Jean Rousset and French businesswoman and brothel co-owner Germaine Guerin. 
Virginia decided to utilize both in tandem as she convinced the girls working for Guerin to drug Nazi soldiers and had Dr. Rousset give girls who were not free of venereal disease white cards to show Nazis who were seeking their services. Yeah, the white card system's kind of interesting, too. German military brothels were set up by Nazi Germany for the use of German soldiers. Now, strangely, having sex was encouraged by the German commanders as a matter of policy, who believed that amorous and lustful men made better fighters and killers. Huh. Yeah. Oh, there you go. In an effort to protect the soldiers from sexually transmitted diseases, the authorities issued special white cards, which indicated that the woman had been examined and was infection-free. Now, the main diseases at the time being syphilis and gonorrhea. Now, it should be noted that in the brothel that she was dealing with, Virginia Hall, the women would sometimes ply men with heroin, with the men not knowing they were taking it. The hope was that they would turn the soldiers into dysfunctional addicts. And you also have to remember at the time, a soldier with an STD was basically wounded. I mean, they could die right. from that. Right. And Virginia Hall was part of the that she was able to resource them with what they needed to do that. Dr. Rousseau also provided the girls with itching powder to sprinkle amongst their clients undergarments to um, maximize their discomfort. Because Dr. Rousseau was also a dermatologist, when the infected Nazis would come to him for medical treatment, he would provide an array of creams or ointments that could actually make things even worse. I can only think that this somehow violates Geneva Convention rules. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not honorable. I think it definitely violates do no harm, (laughs) but I guess, you know. They were Nazis, so. Greater good. Right. Although Dr. Rousseau and Gurin were vital to her efforts, Virginia found that she was truly gifted in developing a network of underground agents who helped perfect the art of sabotage. 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 She enlisted a lingerie supplier to hide weapon caches under stacks of bras had hairdressers design fashionable hairstyles that could actually hide messages or would help disguise resistance fighters. Virginia had an agent in just about every job one could think of that might be part of a daily routine, and these members of the underground network provided absolutely vital assistance to the SOE and to the resistance. When her asset network began to face more intense likelihood of discovery, Virginia took to one-on-one training with each member of her network so that she could ensure that each one of them was well-versed in evasion and escape tactics. It wasn't just the spies she managed that had to employ a fast escape. Virginia herself, despite the clunkiness of Cuthbert, found herself running off trains, sliding out of windows, and jumping onto moving vehicles in order to avoid capture. Actually, they used her character as the basis for the Bourne movies. That's not true. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> She's jumping out of windows onto moving vehicles. Well, she has this... one leg. I know. Have you noticed amazing. that spying through the other stories, there are a lot of people who lost legs being yes. spies. Yes. I mean, I, it, that seemed to be a thing. 
Well, There's, the lip- this is the third person we've run across <laughs> these stories about spies that has lost a leg. And we haven't even been doing this that long. Well, the limping lady, as she was called, came to be one of the Gestapo's greatest adversaries and was considered the most dangerous of all Allied spies. You know, the Nazis had to especially hate her. I mean, not only was she a woman, but she was a woman with a deformity. And we know how the Nazis felt about that. And she kept evading them. It must have kept Hitler up at night knowing must, that she was giving right. her men itching, giving his men itching powder and <laughs> gonorrhea and syphilis. Well, they probably never realized that that was happening, you know? I mean, they probably never realized that, the, that, that there was a powder causing the itching, but it was just to think that a woman with only one leg was being yeah. able to do this. You know, Nazis were all about being perfect and perfect bodily condition and well just, how would you like to be the nazi that was chasing her and couldn't catch her <laughs> right well maybe they could not run like, very fast because they were itching <laughs> well, that's true but i mean like come on dude she only had one leg and it's like no you don't get it she leaped out a window onto a moving car right like man i i don't know i can't explain it well finally virginia had to escape france it just got too demanding And she was forced to escape by foot through the frozen landscape of the Pyrenees Mountains. Still, she maintained her sense of humor. She was able to transmit one message about her condition back to London. And that message said that she was doing okay, but Cuthbert wasn't faring so well. The decoder who received the message was not aware that Cuthbert was the name of Virginia's prosthetic leg. And he responded with, well, if Cuthbert is causing you problems, have him eliminated. So, Mm. (laughs) after this grueling and miserable trek, Virginia finally ended up in Spain. You know, she's like, oh, God, I'm finally here. But she didn't have entry papers. So, right after she got there, she was thrown into prison for six weeks. So, that's great. Um, She was released after a freed inmate smuggled a letter that Virginia had penned to the American consul. I wonder if she would have won. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I wonder if she would have run into uh, Juan. I don't know. I keep wondering when I'm when I'm. Well, of course, Juan was in Lisbon for the whole war. (laughs) Juan was in Lisbon the whole time. And if she did run into him, she wouldn't have known because he would have been lying about (laughs) something. (laughs) Exactly. But the funny thing is, if Juan had been like, I have an asset who has a wooden leg and who does this, that, the other people wouldn't have (laughs) believed him. (laughs) He was part of the network. That's the backstory. I have this spy in my network has a wooden leg. (laughs) Her father was a rich banker. There's no way that could be true. But his, his fake stuff was believed. Yeah. Well... She stayed in Spain for a while, again under the guise as a war correspondent, but was eventually sent to London to train as a wireless radio operator. This was an incredibly dangerous job. This was not in a room with a radio. This was you on the ground in different areas trying to send transmissions. While there, she heard of a new office forming, and that was the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS. Now, the OSS was a precursor to the CIA, and it really came about because Roosevelt realized that all of our intelligence gathering and sabotage 
Sabotage. Sabotage. They were not done under one umbrella. Okay. Everybody was doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. The Treasury, the Navy, the War Department. The Army and the Navy had separate code-breaking departments, and they didn't always communicate with each other. Roosevelt knew that that was going to be a problem, so he had a plan drafted based on the British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. So the organization was developed with British assistance, and then it was officially established by presidential order on 1942 and eventually became the CIA. But the reason for it was, again, to put everything under one person. Right, under under one one organization. Yeah, that makes sense. After joining the OSS, she was sent back into France, which increased the danger of her mission due to her notoriety there. She was not able to parachute in due to her leg. Now, see, instructors had fake legs sometimes. I know. In Christine Granville's story... Andrew had a fake leg and he was a parachute instructor. So I'm not sure why maybe, I don't know, maybe it was the weight of the leg. (laughs) I don't don't know. It was just a different instructor. (laughs) Because in the other stories, it's like, yeah, we can do that. Right, no problem. It was like, no, no, no fake legs. (laughs) Right. Well, either way, she arrived in France by torpedo boat. So she's still managed to enter it into a pretty cool way. Her assignment in France was on the ground mobile radio operation, and to avoid detection, her disguise was that of an elderly milkmaid. Now, when you think of a milkmaid, you don't really think of an elderly milkmaid, right? I, To me, when I think milkmaid, seeing a woman lip around an old woman, that would seem right to me. Oh, well, so... Basically, she used the limp to her advantage then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wearing the layers of skirts uh, made her appear heavier than she was, and it helped her disguise equipment. As cumbersome as the whole disguise was, she managed to constantly evade capture and protect radio transmissions as Germans were constantly trying to track the radios down. As D-Day loomed, Virginia Hall was given a new directive. She ended up training three battalions of French resistance fighters for sabotage Sabotage. Sabotage missions against the retreating Germans. In her final battle report, Virginia claimed her team destroyed four bridges, derailed freight trains, severed a vital rail line in several spots, and downed telephone lines all over the place. The report also stated that Hall's team killed around 150 Germans and captured 500 more. During this time, Virginia met another SOE agent by the name of Paul Gaston Gullit. They became good friends, and many years later, a little more. A lot more, actually. After this mission was complete, Virginia was dispatched to Austria under the codename Diane with the directive of supervising more acts of sabotage 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 that would complete the work of Allied aerial bombardment. Targets included the German Air Force operations, fuel and oil resources, and enemy communications. After Virginia had been there for some time, identifying targets, gathering resources, and planning specifications, the mission was pulled because they believed the end of the war was imminent, and then it happened. The war was over. 
There were attempts to get Virginia to acknowledge and talk about her war accomplishments after she came home to America, an official war hero. But she would just shrug off those attempts with a simple, it was just six years of my life. Despite her humility and her insistence that those contacts that worked for her were the real unsung heroes of the war, the Truman administration awarded her the Distinguished Service Cross. At the age of 40, Dindy Hall was nowhere near finished with intelligence work. She spent the next 20 years of her life in various supervisory positions within the CIA. During this time, she married her one-time SOE partner and longtime friend Paul Gullit. The couple bought a farm outside of Maryland. It was reminiscent of her happy childhood home at Boxhorn. And Virginia settled into a happy life of gardening, cheese-making, and cuddling the couple's two spoiled standard poodles, all while still being a CIA agent. Agents were required to retire at age 60, so that's what Virginia did. And afterwards, she took up weaving on a hand loom, continued her hobby farm activities, and she started reading history and spy novels from her extensive library. And here's what I want to know. What spy novel could she possibly read that would compare to her own life? Well, and she was probably sitting there reading them thinking, Duh, that was a stupid thing to do. If you right. would have done this, you would have killed 40 of them. Right. Or I I did that. <laughs> yeah. 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 But did he jump out of a window onto a car? No, I don't think I don't so. Think so. <laughs> right. She spent her years living a simple, uncomplicated life, doing the things that she loved with the man that she loved. And only illness would sometimes slow her down. Virginia Hall passed away peacefully at the age of 72. This incredible woman had done exactly what her father had encouraged her to do in her dream so many years before. She survived. She survived losing her family fortune. She survived losing her leg. She survived Nazi occupation. She survived the Gestapo hunting her down. She survived a winter trek through Pyrenees Mountains on foot. She survived guerrilla warfare and last-minute escape attempts. She survived the horrors of war and was actually able to find peace that so many that returned never could find. She survived. Virginia Hall was a sister, a daughter, a student, a naturalist, an amputee, a guerrilla warrior, a mentor, an escape artist, a saboteur, an agent, a wife, and she was a spy. If you are enjoying the show and would like to discuss the spies or gain a little spy intel, join us at the Spy Stories podcast group on Facebook. You can support the show by following us at Spy Stories on Twitter and Instagram. And help us get the word out by sharing the show, be that retweets or shares on Facebook or iTunes reviews. The life of Virginia Hall reminds us, whatever we face, it is not as big as it seems. Just don't stop. Do what must be done. Make connections. Build bridges. And when necessary, blow them up. <laughs> Live. Survive. Like Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, 
keep fighting. Thank you.